Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGenia on TalkShoe. This is Friday, April 22nd, 2011. At Chris DeGenia this week, I, I had set up about six months ago, I had set up two streaming radio stations that they're listed on AOL Shoutcast that they, um, for the last, well, well, practically six months, they were um, repeating the same programs from Eli and I over and over. And, and this week, I actually switched the programming at ChrisDegenia.net. If you, if, if you, the, the, um, there's a radio icon on ChrisDegenia.org on the, on the left-hand side of the page on my main website. And, and it'll bring you to the links or, or open up a pop-up window so that you, with players in it so that you could listen if, if you so desire. At, at Christagenos.net, I'm now playing um, the Mein Kampf Project podcasts, as I like to call them, the, the come-out-of-her programs I've done with Sword Brethren about European history and, and mostly World War II and, and the Jew, Jewish treachery in, in Europe especially in Germany, the last, um, we've been discussing for the last two years, practically. And and on net, I've been playing probably about 40 programs, a a loop of about 40 programs that I've done mostly on my own, a few with Eli, the the programs I've done with Clifton and Jeremy Visser and, and things like that, just to change it up. I'll be changing the program a lot more the programming on on the streaming radio a lot more often now since I've set it up to where it's a lot easier to do that. The um it, it took far too much time the first way I set it up, but but it it helped me get it up quickly. Okay, at the Dixie site at Gerald Mosley's Dixie site, a lot of um organizing was done this week and and i also posted a, a what i thought was a good sermon from john weaver it, it's pastor john weaver it's from a, a mainstream perspective it, he's not exactly christian identity but like a lot of common sense christians he understood that jesus could not possibly be a jew as we know the jews today and he makes that distinction between Jew and Judahite, which is a correct distinction, and and I posted that this week. It, it it's actually a pretty good sermon from a mainstream perspective. If you want to point anybody to that, it, it's under the um, the video library under sermons at dixie.christogenia.org, and and the Dixie site is going to grow, and and um, that there will be a lot of good material in the months to come about the struggle of the South in um, Yahweh willing, because this, the struggle of the South was, in, in, in a many great respects, it was our struggle, just like the struggle of survival of Hitler's Germany was also our struggle. It was the fight against the international Jew who wishes to enslave the entire world, we know that that's a subject of scripture, that it had to be fulfilled, that it couldn't be avoided, that it's for the punishment of our people. But the only way for us to teach our brethren what happened the last 
several thousand years in history and especially the last several hundred is for us to know it and, and for us to be able to see it. So that's the news at Christagenia this week. Christagenia is um, still in the top 100,000 websites on the world, according to Alexa.com. The, the um, second most popular Christian identity site is probably Israel Elect, but which is around 800,000 and something. And, and praise Yahweh, and I, I, I thank everybody that stops at Christagenia for that. Okay, last week discussing um, Matthew chapter 1, we saw that the word generation, right out of the gate, we saw the word generation was used to mean race, and that was defined right in the opening verse of the New Testament. This is the race of Jesus Christ, or the book of the race of Jesus Christ. That, that should be um, absolutely clear that generation in that passage cannot mean all of the people living at any one particular time as the mainstream Judeo churches try to convince us that it means. Because it's talking about the generation in the singular, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, and it means all of his ancestors all the way back to David as Matthew recorded it. So we see right there that the word generation means race, and in the narrow sense, because to the ancient Greeks, as I explained last week, a race is a um, a group within a nation. Now, now today we see that one race, the, the Saxon race, which, which I hope everybody here has sprung from, or, or the related Celts, that, that we see that the Saxon race and, and the Celtic race also became many nations as they grew. So we use the idea of race a little differently than the ancient Greeks did. However, that's the meaning of the word. Last week, we also, reading the genealogy of Christ, attempted to set the record straight concerning the women mentioned in his genealogy. Upon inspection, all of those women were upright, noble, Israelite women and not the race-mixing whores that mainstream Judaized so-called Christians would make them out to be. In yet another attempt, one attempt after another, to mold God into their own perverted image. God made us in his image, provided we've kept it. We then saw testimony from Matthew that Yahshua was indeed declared to be the expected Messiah, that God who walks with us promised by the Old Testament prophets, especially Isaiah, and who would save his people from their errors, and Yahshua's name means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves, depending on how we want to interpret it the same name of that Joshua of the book, the Old Testament book of Joshua, who Yahweh testified that his name was, was in him or, or on him, and, and that's also Yahweh saves. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. 
Now, Yahshua being born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herodas the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, having been born king of the Judeans? For we have his star in the east. We have seen his star in the east. And we have come to worship him. Strabo, the famous Greek historian and geographer, who wrote about 25 AD, he died about 25 AD, let me put it that way. He quotes Polybius, who who had lived several hundred years before, in in a, a fragment that's otherwise lost, since not all of Polybius' work has survived to us. Strabo quotes Polybius where he, st- where he says that, quote, the priests of the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, and the Magi, because they excelled their fellows in knowledge of some kind or other, attained to leadership and honor among the peoples of our time. That's Geography, Book 1, Chapter 2. Now, from that passage, it's clear, and it's clear in many other ancient writings, that the Chaldeans, who were actually the Babylonians of later historic times, the Babylonians who invaded Judah in the 6th and 7th century B.C. and carted off all of the people of Jerusalem to Babylon, they were Chaldeans. Chaldean is a tribal name. that They were actually a branch of the people of Syria who had many hundreds of years before, come into Babylon and taken, basically taken it over. We see that the Chaldeans, you know, wizardry and, and magic are often associated with the Chaldeans, the ancient Chaldean astrologers, especially astrology. Well, well the Magi are sometimes confused, even by identity writers, with the Chaldeans, and, and they're definitely two separate entities. The Magi are not Chaldeans, they're not Chaldean priests, and, and vice versa. Except during the Persian period, when the Persians had conquered Babylon. And, and maybe that's where some of the confusion comes from, but it shouldn't exist. Quoting Posidonius, Strabo says that the Council of the Parthians consists of two groups. One, that of kinsmen and the other that of wise men and magi, from both of which groups the kings were appointed. The magi were said by Strabo to have kept a guard at the tomb of Cyrus, the the famous Persian king, that, that Cyrus who conquered Babylon. They directed the sacrifices of the Persians and distributed the meat from their altars. Strabo notes that they didn't set aside a portion of meat for the Persian deities because the gods do not need meat, which was their reasoning, where Strabo also said that the Persians do not erect statues or altars, but they do offer sacrifices in in, in high places, well, which is a practice that we see the Israelites were chastised for in the in Jeremiah and, and Kings and Chronicles in, in the Old Testament scriptures. Strabo also mentions his own Eyewitness account of a sect of the Magi who were called Pireathi, or or fire kindlers, who dwelt in Cappadocia, which is what we know as Turkey, the eastern part today. 
They are said to keep eternal fire and to sacrifice animals by beating them to death, by cudgeling them, and to carry about in procession a wooden statue of a strange god named Omanus. Among the Magi of Persia, Strabo said that when they die, they are not buried, but rather their bodies are left to be eaten by birds, and he mentions that they were known to consort even with their mothers, a pretty strong charge. Strabo's view of the Magi, even considering the more fantastic stories he offered, is still quite practical compared to that of Diodorus Siculus, who wrote up until about 35 or 40 B.C., who only makes one notable mention of them, at least in relation to our purposes here, on one occasion where he states, speaking of the early people of the island of Rhodes, who were called the Telkines, that, quote, men say that the Telkines were also wizards and could summon clouds and rain and hail at their will, and likewise could even bring about snow. These things, the accounts tell us, they could do even as could the Magi of Persia. And they could also change their natural shapes and were jealous of teaching their arts to others. So, so we see that, um, well, well first, that the ability to command rain and, and things like that are attributed to the ancient Hebrew prophets. But here we see shapeshifters and, and other fabulous tales, which, which we see um, repeated amongst the Celts and, and amongst other branches of the white race in Europe. However, Strabo didn't make any such fantastic statements concerning the Magi. And the much earlier Herodotus, speaking of the Medes, names the Magi as one of the tribes of which they consist, and he lists six tribes. In his account of the birth of Cyrus, which is considered fantastic by most commentators, the historian describes one of the Magi as being an interpreter of dreams for Astyages, the king of the Medes, a gift we also see attributed, albeit imperfectly, to the Chaldean priests at Babylon in the book of Daniel. Daniel, of course, being inspired by Yahweh, being the, uh, a much better interpreter of dreams. This is describing events, Herodotus' history concerning the Magi and, and the birth of Cyrus, which took place circa 580 B.C., which is a century and a half before Herodotus actually wrote, but this is right around the same time as the Hebrew prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, had all lived. Herodotus also said of the Magi that, quote, the Magi are a very peculiar race, differently entire, different entirely from the Egyptian priests, and indeed from all men whatsoever. The Egyptian priests make it a point of religion not to kill any live animals except those which they offer in sacrifice. 
The Magi, on the contrary, kill animals of all kinds with their own hands, excepting dogs and men. They seem to take a delight in the employment and kill as readily as they do other animals, ants and snakes, and such flying or creeping things. However, since this has always been their custom, let them keep to it. Now, now this seems trite, and, and I understand that, but what Herodotus does not say about the Magi is important. Herodotus being 400 years earlier than Diodorus Siculus and, and almost 500 years earlier than Strabo. Herodotus recorded a lot of fantastic stories for which he is sometimes criticized, but he himself admitted this and, and considered it his duty, even though he didn't believe the stories, to report all that is said. And, and he, he states that explicitly in, in paragraph 152, in, in section 152 of his seventh book. Yet, when it comes to the Magi, Herodotus did not report any fantastic stories such as shape-shifting, like we see in Diodorus, or, or flying carpets, or other wild tales. Herodotus does give a long account of, of a certain Magi, named, uh, called by the Greeks Pseudosmyrtus. His Persian name was Garmada, and, and Pseudosmyrtus is said to have impersonated Bardia, the brother of Cambyses, and Cambyses died on his way back from a battle in Ethiopia, in, in, in Africa, actually, and, and um, Pseudosmyrtus seized the throne and, and ruled Persia, and he was a Magi. And, and I'm stating this history of the Magi to show that, that they are very well known to us from ancient history. The, the Magi are, according to all accounts, a priesthood amongst the Persians and the Medes. Our earliest records of them are in the writing of Herodotus. I have books of inscriptions that, that go back all the way back to Sumerian times, and, and, and some of these inscriptions probably date to 2500 B.C., and, and one of the main books is um, Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament. It was published in 1969 at Princeton University Press. And, and it's, it's like an 800-page book. It's voluminous, and, and it's very thorough and, and well-researched. And it's a collection of, of transcriptions translated by, by a host of various scholars. And, and this book... It, 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 it represents all of the um, inscriptions of the Egyptians and the Assyrians, and that there are some Persian inscriptions in it, but mostly Assyrians, Babylonians, and, and Egyptians, and, and some Hittites and Canaanite inscriptions, and everything that the editors and, and the authors thought would, would um, the translators thought would be important to somebody studying the Old Testament. That, that's the point of this book of inscriptions. And it doesn't mention the Magi at all. I can't find them either in the index or, or in my own half a dozen pages of, of notes I made from reading the book. So, so it, it's um, clear to me that the, the best information we have concerning the Magi, e even though it's 
obviously not all accurate. Some of it's fantastic, but, but probably came from the Greek writers. That now that they were attributed as interpreters of dreams and, and with various skills, but they weren't necessarily only magicians. They, they were actually the priests, the, the priestly class of the, um, the Medes and the Persians. But let me say that they really don't appear in history until after the, um, in recorded history anyway, until after the time of Cyrus the emperor, and that's rather late in, in biblical history that the Magi appeared. That, that's not until after 530 B.C. when, when Cyrus takes Babylon. So, so that's... Um, 530 B.C., Jerusalem had already been, the, the people of Jerusalem had already been carted off to Babylon 50 years before that. So to put things in perspective, it may be that the Magi don't appear, and I'll mention it again later, it may be that the Magi don't appear until the Levites and, and the other children of Israel are distributed amongst the um, the, the Medes and the Persians by the Assyrians and, and the Babylonians. Ezra book um, chapter 8 verse 17 states and I sent them with commandment unto Edo the chief at, at the place Cassithia and I told them what they should say unto Edo and to his brethren the Nethanims at the place Cassithia, that they should bring us ministers for the house of our God. Ezra wasn't very happy with the Levites that had come back from, from Babylon, and he sent to Cassithia and, and sent for, for Levites and priests from out of the Assyrian captivity to come back to Babylon. From, from to come back, I'm sorry, to Jerusalem to be priests at the rebuilt temple of Zorobabel. In a paper I wrote, Classical Records of the Origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes, I wrote this, quote, East of Iberia and reaching to the Caspian Sea was Albania, of which the eastern part, called Caspiana, sat at the mouth of that same Araxis River where the Scythians are placed at the earliest times. Herodotus mentions the Caspians, Book 7, Chapter 67, and in company with the Bactrians in Xerxes' Persian army at Book 7, Chapter 86, or, or perhaps I should say Section 86. In Strabo, we have seen the relationship of the Bactrians and Scythians mentioned above. Caspiana must be, as Dr. George Moore agrees in his book, The Lost Tribes and the Saxons of the East and the Saxons of the West, a book which I have available in PDF format at Christogenia. That same district mentioned by Ezra at Ezra 8.17. So Dr. George Moore noticed this 150 years ago. Cassithia is Caspiana. Cassithia, to which Ezra sent the Levites 
for Levites to come to Jerusalem after the rebuilding of the temple. Moore wrote as much in the 1870s when his book was first published. Actually, I think it may have been 1860. Caspiano or Cassitia was an area that Herodotus would well have associated with the Medes. It is very possible that he and later writers, all the way down to the time of Christ, may have confused Levites in the area as being another, quote-unquote, sect of the Magi. As Strabo puts it, it is very possible that the Magi of the time of Christ may well have been descended from the Levites of the deportations of Israel and Judah. I wouldn't stick my neck out and insist that they were, but it seems to be highly plausible. In any respect, the Magi were absolutely white men. That There should be no doubt that they were Aryans. And, and I know that when you, I mean, I hope we no longer buy nativity sets at Christmas time, right? But a, a lot of people voice disgust that when they see a nativity set, that they see one white-looking guy and, and one ambiguously Asian-looking guy and, and one Negro. And, and that is a, a universalist lie. It's very clear in history, and, and you, Xenophon actually wrote that the Persians were a race of ivory-white men and, and had ivory-white skin, and, and it's very, very clear in history that the Persians, the Parthians, the Parthians are definitely Israelites of the dispersion. The Medes are Jepethites. The Persians are Shemites, according to Genesis chapter 10. Right along with, with, with the Israelites, they're, they're cousins of the Israelites. These people were all absolutely white. And, and that's a sticking point for the Jews. The Jews have to, um, that they embrace their Torah, they have to reject Genesis chapter 10. Because all um, classical and, and mainstream historians will tell you that the Persians, the Aryans were, were white, that they'll have to tell you that. They really don't have a choice. There's far too much information on that available. It, it's a brazen lie if they say the Persians were anything but white. The, the word Iran, and, and the Iranians at one time were Persians, they're Persians in part. That They've been overrun by both Arabs and Mongols within the last 1,500 years. They're not white any longer, but they were white. Iran is actually a, a contraction for Aryan. In Roman times, in, in Greco-Roman times, the land was called Ariana, for which Her Herodotus makes the statement that the Medes in ancient times were the first people called Aryans. Now, I believe he may have meant Israelites among the Medes. But my point here is, is to show that the Magi, it's very, very well known in history who these people are, where they came from. We can conjecture that they may have been Israelites, Levites of the dispersion, and we can make that conjecture very safely. I just wouldn't demand it. it it's, um, we, I, I just don't believe enough information can be had to make the determination one or, one or the other. However, it's not important that they were white men, they were Adamic men, and, and we know that they came from the Parthian Empire, which at the time encompassed all the land of the ancient 
Persians, the ancient Medes, and the ancient Assyrians. And, and these people are all listed in Genesis 10 as relations to the Hebrew Israelites. They're all Adamic people. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. And hearing it, hearing about the star in the east, and the birth of a Messiah from the account of the Magi, he born king of the Judeans, Hearing it, King Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And upon gathering all the high priests and scribes of the people, he inquired from them, Where is the Christ born? So obviously, as Peter says, even the devils know there is one God, and they tremble. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thusly it was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the leaders of Judah, for there shall come, there shall come out of you a leader who shall shepherd my people Israel. There are four things to discuss in these few verses. First, the use of the plural. The first time it appears in, in the New Testament, the word high priest, we see it in the plural. Then there's Herod being an Edomite, and we'll demonstrate that. Then there's Bethlehem, the city of David. This quote is from Micah chapter 5. And then we see the conspiracy against Christ. The use of the word plural... The, the, the use of the word high priest in the plural it is in itself, it, it's, a, it's a, um, a direct violation of the scripture. But the situation was absolutely true at the time. When Herod had, the, the Maccabees, the Hasmonean dynasty, that had um, arose, ascended to the high priesthood, and, and about 155 BC, through the yoke of the Syrians off of the um, off off of the people of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem basically became an independent state from around 155 152 BC in there. And and the dynasty which followed the, the high priests from that time were, were called Maccabees, meaning hammers because of the distinction that they had in, in rising up and leading the people into battle successfully against the Syrians. But their, their family name was Hasmonius, and, and they were called the Hasmonian dynasty. Now, now, Herod actually had the last of them murdered. His father was, a, was an Edomite general in, in, um, in the army, and put his two sons in, into high positions as governors in Jerusalem and Galilee. And Herod was the governor of Galilee riding on his father's coattails. His father actually got the generalship that he had because he was a rich Edomite merchant. All of this is, is, um, it is explained by Josephus in his History Antiquities of the Judeans. 
Well, once Herod attained the kingship in Judea around 36 B.C., one of the first things he did was slay all the principal men of Jerusalem. I'll probably repeat that again later. I have notes on it below. And, and another thing he did was he started using the high priesthood as a political tool. And he started appointing high priests and, and then replacing them when he got upset with the high priest and, and making somebody else the high priest. Now, the Romans, after the time of the first Herod, they took over the appointment of high priests and they continued in that same vein which basically made a mockery of the office of high priest. It became a political appointment, and the high priests were no longer from the line of Aaron, as Josephus, the historian, attests. And the office was no longer for life, as the Old Testament demands. So once a man had the title of high priest, even if the Romans or or Herod had removed him from the office, he would maintain the title, sort of like we use an emeritus title now of retired professors or army generals, what were they that they just append retired to, to their title. And and that's it common in many vocations today. What where you would retain your title doctor is another one, you you would retain that title doctor long after you're retired. Well well, such it was with the high priests of Jerusalem. And, and sometimes there were two or three high priests, former high priests living at one time, which is why we see the word used in the plural very often throughout the New Testament. And, and it's really a mockery of the law of God and, and his appointment of the Aaronic priesthood. It, it's not legitimate at all. Herod was an Edomite. It can be well established in history that Herod was an Edomite. I'm going to quote Revelation 12.4 in part, and we see, quote, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, in order that when she should give birth, he may devour her child. The dragon here is represented by the historical Herod the Great. Only Herod and, and I hate to call him Herod the Great, but that's what he's called in all the books. He's the first King Herod, the Edomite. Only Herod attempted to murder Christ child as soon as he was born, as we find recorded here in Matthew. The fact that Herod represents this dragon, and only Herod can possibly represent this dragon, is quite profound once we discover that Herod was not an Edomite, uh, I'm sorry, an Israelite, but he was an Edomite by race. That Herod was indeed of the seed of Esau is fully apparent in the pages of Flavius Josephus, where it is attested to, directly or indirectly, at least five times. Those instances I will cite here. Josephus from Antiquities, Book 14, Chapter 8. But there was a certain friend of Hyrcanus, an Edomian, called Antipater, who was very rich, and his nature an active and seditious man, 
who was at enmity with Aristobulus and had differences with him on account of his goodwill to Hyrcanus. Well, Antipater is the father of Herod, and the context of Josephus, book 14, will prove that out. From Josephus, book Antiquities, book 14, I'm sorry, that was section 8, not, not chapter 8, section 403. But Antigonus, by way of reply to what Herod had caused to be proclaimed, and this before the Romans, and before Silo also, said that they would not do justly if they gave the kingdom to Herod, who is no more than a private man, and an Edomian. Now, Josephus here called Herod a half-Jew, and he was doing it not, not to call him a half-Jew by race, because it could be established that Herod's mother was also an Edomian, but meaning that he was a Jew only, a Judean only by nationality, only by the, the circumstances of his government. Judea at the time was a polyglot society. It included the people of Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and Edomia, which is really, and, and I'll show that in a moment, Edomia at this time was really the southern part of the ancient land of Judah. From Josephus' Wars of the Judeans, Book 1, Section 123. Now, those other people which were at variance with Aristobulus were afraid upon his unexpectedly, unexpectedly obtaining the government, and especially this concerned Antipater, whom Aristobulus hated of old. He, meaning Antipater, was by birth an Edomian and one of the principal of that nation on account of his ancestors and riches and other authority to him belonging. So Herod's father was a notable Edomite. Josephus's Wars, Book 1, Sections 312 and 313. And here a certain old man, the father of seven children, whose children, together with their mother, desired him to give them permission to go out upon the assurance and right hand that was offered them, slew them after the following manner. This man slew his own seven children. He ordered every one of them to go out while he stood himself at the cave's mouth and slew each son as he went out. Herod was near enough to see the sight, and his bowels of compassion were moved at it, and he stretched out his right hand to the old man and besought him to spare his children, yet he did not relent at all upon what he said, but over and above reproached Herod on the lowness of his descent and slew his wife as well as his children. And when he had thrown their dead bodies down the precipice, he at last threw himself down after them. This man would not give himself over to the command of an Edomite, so he slew his own children and his own wife and himself. At one time, people stood up to their principles. Antiquities, Book 14, Section 403. We see that Joseph is called Herod a half-Jew, but that by that, he did not mean that his mother was an Israelite, since here, where Josephus is speaking of Antipater, we shall see that Herod's mother was indeed an Edomian. At Antiquities, Book 14, Parts 120 to 121, Josephus wrote, And as he came back to Tyre, he went up into Judea also and attacked Tarakahi, 
and presently took it and carried about 30,000 Judeans captives. And he slew Pithalos, who succeeded Aristobulus in his seditious practices, and that by the persuasion of Antipater, Herod's father, who proved to have great interest in him, and was at that time in great repute with the Edomians also, out of which nation he married a wife, who was the daughter of one of their eminent men, and her name was Cyprus, like the island Cyprus, and by whom he had four sons, Bassael and Herod, who was afterwards made king, and Joseph and Pheroras, and a daughter named Salome. So here we have the evidence that Herod was 100% Edomite. While it is apparent that half, by half-Jew, Josephus did not mean racially, since both of his parents were Edomites, he had to use the term only as far as concession and appearance were concerned, as we would consider somebody um, a, 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 by a national name, a governmental name, and, and not by a racial name, just like we're all Americans, right? It is fully evident that Herod, representative of the dragon, was fully an Edomite by blood. Remember, as it is mentioned in both Malachi chapter 1 and Romans chapter 9, Yahweh our God hated Esau. And Paul even referred to the Edomites as vessels of destruction. The nature of this dragon, I'll discuss at length below. Now, now let me say that... um. The fact that Judea consisted of, of as many Edomites as it did Judahites is well known by archaeologists. And, and the only people that really don't know it or, or don't want to know it, the Jews know it, it's in their own writing, are, are, are mainstream Judaized Christians. They refuse to consider that these people who were adverse to Christ and who were adverse to the apostles were Edomites. But the, the truth is not hidden. It lies out in plain sight. If you look up Herod Archelaus, Herod Archelaus, A-R-C-H-E-L-A-U-S, Herod, H-E-R-O-D, Archelaus, on Wikipedia, it will tell you that he was king over Edomia, Judea, and Galilee. He was the king, he was the son of Herod that inherited the throne. It's right on Wikipedia, and it's in several other Wikipedia articles that Judea incorporated ancient Edomia, the land of the Edomites. That this is laying in plain sight, and, and mainstream Christians just refuse to think that these Jews are anything but, quote-unquote, God's chosen people. When in fact, they rejected God 2,000 years ago, and the New Testament proves that they're devils. Near Eastern archaeology. It's an archaeological journal, a very scholarly one, even though there are some Jews involved in the production of this too. It's impossible to avoid. Volume 68, number 2, March, June 2005, page 16. This is from an article entitled, A People Transformed, Palestine in the Persian Period. I'd say, well, more than 
transformed. They, they were just usurped is, is more like it. The province of Edomia. Southern areas. This is describing Palestine in the Persian period. Southern areas that might be described as extremely inland, including the northern Negev, that, that's the southern desert, and what had once been southern Judah were a part of a Persian province named Edomea. The Edomites had moved up into the land of Judah. They also moved into a lot of the land of Israel. Ezekiel chapters 35 and 36 have the Edomites stating that they would make these two countries their own, meaning Israel and Judah. After all of the Judahites and Israelites were taken out of the land, the Edomites moved in. The lists, quoting from the article, the lists in Nehemiah chapter 11 mention 12, they, they call them Jewish, Judean towns, 10 near Beersheba, Lachish on the northernmost border of the region, and Kiryas Arbor, Arba in the southern hills. Well, that Kiryas Arba is where we get the name Judas Iscariot, which is the Greek for, for the Hebrew, which means Ish-Kerioth, a man of Kerioth or Kiryoth. That's where Judas gets his name from. He was from an Edomite town in southern Judah, southern Judea. Some scholars argue that it represents new settlements following the exile, that is, following a gap in occupation. Other scholars argue that these sites were continuously occupied, although not necessarily by Judeans. The later option seems to make the most sense if looking at the archaeological evidence from this desert borderland. O. Lipschitz reviewed these arguments fully in a recent paper in which he followed an argument developed nearly a century ago by Gerhard von Rad, that this list from Nehemiah is actually an ideal reflection of Judah's borders to which the people would aspire after the walls of Jerusalem were built. Thus, the location of a northern or southern border for Judah is immaterial, goes the argument, from a Persian perspective. But again, as stated earlier, Persian borders and administrative issues are significant, but not to the extent some would make them. In this case, here in the south, they are probably not so significant as when Edom and Judah were independent kingdoms. Persian dominance here, as in the rest of the region, in all likelihood relegated the actual borders between provinces as inconsequential at best. It's very clear, and it's all over archaeological sources, that southern Judah was inhabited by Edomites. The article goes on to say these were also non-issues in the Hellenistic period when Edomians had taken over a large area of the south of, of southern Judah. And these are the people that the Maccabees had forced, and Josephus records it, the Maccabees forced them all to convert to Judaism. Well, what I can only call Judaism. They thought it was the ancient Hebrew Bible, but, but if they're converting Edomites, 
And, and the ancient Hebrew Bible says that an Edomite will never enter the congregation of Yahweh. But, well, then they're screwing up. I can't call it Hebrewism anymore. It's Judaism. So there should be no doubt, and, and it's all over, there's much archaeological evidence on it, that the Edomians had inhabited the land of Judah after the deportation of Judah. And the Maccabees had forced them all to convert to Judaism. These people known as Jews are Edomites. Yahweh, in Malachi chapter 1, says to hate Esau and will lay his heritage waste. Paul repeats that in Romans chapter 9. Once we understand that in Romans chapter 9, Paul is expressing a care for his Israelite kin and making the assertion that the Israelites are accepted and vessels of mercy and the Edomites are hated by God and vessels of destruction. Only then can we understand what the Jew is today and why the Jew is forever opposed to Christianity and to all morals and decency. I'll repeat Matthew 2, verses 3 through 6. And hearing it, King Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And upon gathering all the priests and scribes of the people, he inquired from them, Where is the Christ born? And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thusly it was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you least among the leaders of Judah, for there shall come out of you a leader who shall shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem was the city of David. The quote is from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I would like to repeat the entire thing. Micah 5, 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrath was the original name of Bethlehem before the Israelites came into the land and changed it. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time which she, which, until the time that she which travaileth have brought, has brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. The ruler of Israel shall come from Bethlehem. He shall be of the tribe of Judah. And as Micah says here, he shall be smitten. The prophecy in Micah also reveals by necessity that the ruler is Yahweh himself. And we know that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh come in the flesh. The ruler is Yahweh himself because it states that while he is coming in the future, he is also one whose goings forth have been from of old, from 
everlasting. That can only describe God himself. Now Matthew records that at the report of the Magi, Herodotus was troubled, and all Jerusalem with, with him. That indicates that all of the court of Herod, which heard the Magi, the officers, the priests, and whoever else may have been present, were troubled about the announcement of a Messiah as much as Herod was. This stands in stark contrast to the joy of the Magi. Or the reaction of the apostles recorded in, in, in the first chapter of John, who, who were joyous to have found he who Moses and the prophets had written about, which is what they said they found. They understood upon meeting and speaking to him that he was indeed the Christ. It also stands in stark contrast to the woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4, who professed that she knew that the Messiah would come. And she even expected to see him in her lifetime. Not knowing that he was standing in front of her. The apostles, as portrayed by John, were anticipating his coming. All of these people expected the Messiah, and they were all full of joy to see him. The people of Judea should have all been full of joy to see him, if indeed they were his people. Rather, as we can learn from the histories of Josephus and from the Old Testament prophecies, these people were not his people, and for that reason, they feared his appearance. It's evident from many later scriptures, from John chapters 8 and 10, and from Romans chapter 9, as I just mentioned it, that the people of Jerusalem, at least a large amount of them, were indeed Edomites and were not Judah. Later in this presentation of the Gospel of Matthew, both Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 shall be presented in their entirety. Discussing the conspiracy against the Christ and how he was to suffer, as foretold by the prophets. For now, Psalm 22:16 reads, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's not talking about Romans. Isaiah chapter 53, which is entirely a messianic prophecy, states in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. We shall see later in his presentation of the Gospels that Christ spoke to Pilate. They had long conversations recorded in the book of John, in the Gospel of John. But he would not answer a word to Herod. Now that Herod at the crucifixion was a descendant of this Herod of the birth of Christ. It was his grandson. 
the connection of dogs as a metaphor to the Canaanites, which is also evident in Matthew chapter 15, where Joshua encounters the Canaanite woman, and the connection of Herod to the dragon of Revelation 12, where we are also told that the dragon is the serpent and Satan, and the connection in Psalm 22 to dogs used of the people that would be responsible for the death of Christ. With these with these clear connections in Scripture and with the facts of history, that alone should make it without doubt that it was the children of the serpent and not the children of God who were ultimately responsible for the murder of God. So Yahshua Christ tells Pilate that he who delivered me unto you has the greater sin. That's in the Gospel of John. Yahshua himself indicating that the Edomites of the Herodian party were indeed responsible for his death. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herodas, calling the Magi secretly, exacted precisely from them the time of the appearance of the star. And sending them to Bethlehem, said, Go and you inquire precisely concerning the child, and when you find him, you report to me that I also coming may worship him. There is no doubt here that Herod exhibits the cunning so manifestly prevalent among those of his own race, and which those who we know as Jews today, the synagogue of Satan, have been famous for throughout time. Now concerning the star, many men have tried to determine, determine exactly what this star was. I am not one of them. We have a lot of wonderful tools available, which seem to be good. And I'll cite one of them is Wolfram Alpha. It's a computational engine, which is openly available on the Internet. You feed it a couple of facts, and it figures things out for you. This particular machine, Wolfram Alpha, is a, actually a software machine, right? It can do marvelous things, including the computation of celestial bodies as they appeared thousands of years ago. However, the flaw in that, and, and even though all, all of the wonders of modern mathematics and, and computational and, 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 and computer engineering and, and all these wonderful things have gone into Wolfram Alpha, and, and I'm not saying it's entirely without use, but the flaw in its use is that we have to assume that as the celestial bodies are today, so they were thousands of years ago. And, and we really don't have a, a good record of that. We must bear in mind that Wolfram Alpha is based on that assumption, and therefore there are no guarantees that it is correct. I, for one, would not depend upon extrapolating present conditions back thousands of years 
in an attempt to determine the past. It would be nice if we had an assurance that we were right, but we simply don't have that assurance. There are many books and papers written by men that profess to know what this star is, and, and they all have their own reasons, and a lot of them make perfect sense uh, until you read the opposing viewpoint. Uh, I can find no scripture today which indicates anything about this star. It's clear that the Magi were indeed quite confident about the appearance and meaning of the star. And so they must have had something, some scripture, that instructed them of the star, of the star and of its significance. I believe that that scripture is now lost. If we ever find it, that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, I, I, um, unless we dig it out of an ancient library or an ancient grave, I don't see recovering it. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. And hearing the king, they went, and behold, the star which they saw in the east went before them. Until coming, it stood above where the child was. And seeing the star, they rejoiced with an exceedingly great joy. And coming into the house, they saw the child with Maria, his mother. That now Mary, I understand, is what the name, the name that we're used to hearing. It's Maria or sometimes Mariam in the Greek. And falling, they worshipped him. And opening their chests, presented gifts to him, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by a dream not to go back to Herod, they withdrew by another way into their country. Let me say that these, um, these Parthians, that these um, three wise men that they're usually called, these Magi, that they weren't traveling by themselves, right? In, in the ancient world, notable men of, of, of any sort of, of office that, that had any sort of wealth or, or any sort of station in life did not travel alone. It was not safe to travel the roads. It was the Wild West. There were no police troopers cruising the highways. That there was no civilization to keep the 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 um the the marauders and 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 the bastards in check. It just didn't happen. You didn't travel from Parthia to Judea just three men and a couple of camels. It it didn't work. If you were poor and you had nothing to take, and and kidnapping you would would not get your kidnappers anything, that then it probably wasn't the problem. Yet you might end up a slave. But it probably wasn't a problem. If you were poor, it probably wasn't a problem ending up a slave. Metastation didn't travel alone. It's almost certain that the Parthians, that the three Magi, if, if it was indeed three, right? I mean, we assume it was three. It, it, the account just says Magi from the east, right? By tradition, it's three. I don't think the scripture says anywhere it's three. I could be wrong, but I don't think it does. Well, well anyway, the, the Magi probably had a large entourage with them. They were probably men easily recognizable as great men because they easily received an audience with Herod, the king of Jerusalem. 
three bums and a camel wandering into a city in the middle of the day, they're not going to get to see the king. The Parthians may have had 100 men with them. They may have had 300 men with them. Servants and, 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 um, and peers. They probably had a great entourage. It's very unlikely that it was just three guys and a camel. It, it was probably a, a very large entourage that attracted the attention of the officials in Jerusalem by which, upon recognizing or, or being identified, they received an audience with the king. Now we shall see in the Gospel of Luke, when we get there, or or I'll quote it here probably, that Luke's, that Yahshua's parents, Joseph and Mary, were quite poor. This is evident in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, where the offering they brought for the child, Yahshua, at his presentation in the temple was a pair of birds, and Luke quotes the scripture. He actually quotes from Leviticus chapter 12. At Leviticus 12, verse 6, it says this, And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, unto the priest, who shall offer it, the lamb and the turtle dove or pigeon, before Yahweh, and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that has born a male or a female child. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, Then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Lambs were expensive. Birds were a lot less expensive. There are several places in, in those chapters in Leviticus which allow for someone of low estate to substitute a lesser sacrifice. And here is one of those examples. This demonstrates that Joseph and Mary were not wealthy people when Christ was born. The gifts brought by the Magi being of great value, it must be that they were somehow stored for the child by the parents rather than having been consumed by them, or they would have certainly been able to afford a lamb, right? No mention is made of such wealth in later scripture. Matthew and Luke each tell this story differently, and they each tell a different part of it. I believe that Luke is focused on the child and and what other people who were pious and who loved God said about him. 
where I believe that Matthew is focused on the events going on in Judea surrounding the birth of the child and on the conspiracy against him by the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's why these two accounts are so different. It may also be that Luke, having Matthew's account, simply wanted to tell the parts of the story that Matthew left out. It's very clear that neither of the accounts is complete by itself. One account fully complements the other. Verse 13. And upon their withdrawing, behold, a messenger of Yahweh appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Arising, take the child and his mother and flee into Egypt, and you must be there until when I should speak to you. For Herod is about to seek the child and to destroy it. And arising, he took the child and his mother at night and withdrew into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, in order that that which had been spoken by Yahweh through the prophet should be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt, I have called my son. First, let me say a, a historical note. Egypt was a, a totally separate Roman province at the time. Herod would have had little authority there. The words, out of Egypt, I have called my son, The words are found in Hosea 11, verse 1, and I will quote that. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Matthew interpreted Hosea 11:1 1, obviously, as a dual prophecy. So we see that a lot of the prophecies that we interpret as dual prophecies, I wouldn't say that every prophecy is a dual prophecy. That, that might be going a little too far. But it is a valid method to interpret prophecies as dual prophecies. We have the Apostle Matthew here doing so himself. Because Hosea 11.1 1 is clear, clearly talking about the children of Israel. Where Matthew is clearly talking about Yahshua Christ. The things which Israel suffered during her national history, Christ also was to suffer to some extent. And that is the reason why many of those prophecies can be revealed to be dual prophecies. Going to Egypt to flee death was symbolic of the children of Israel who did likewise many centuries before. This further solidifies the bond between Christ and his people Israel, something which today's Judaized Christians deny not being able to see it because they somehow think that the Jews are Israel, where the Jews are, Jews are actually Satan. It says in Amos 3, verse 1, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I had brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you all for your iniquities. 
Can two walk together, Israel and Yahweh, except they be agreed? In this respect, Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. If Christ had to be in all things made like unto his brethren, he had to symbolically come out of Egypt the way his Israelite brethren did. To make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. I can take the analogy one step further. The children of Israel were able to escape from bondage with the blood of the Passover lamb, But Yahshua Christ is our real Passover lamb. And the only way we can escape the bondage of sin in this world is through him. Verse 16. Then Herod, seeing that he had been mocked by the Magi, had been exceedingly angered. And sending, he slew all the children who were in Bethlehem and in all of its borders from two years and below, two years and younger, according to the time which he exacted from the Magi. Then that which had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet had been fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, much weeping, Rachel crying for her children, And she did not desire to be comforted, for they are not. And here again, we have a dual prophecy. This applied to the children of Israel in ancient times when they were all taken away. And on another scale, it's shown here. Matthew uses it here as a messianic prophecy concerning the Christ. There is no historical verification of this event, and especially in the pages of Josephus. He's silent on the matter. For that reason, there are many scoffers, and they should all be ashamed of themselves. Bethlehem was a very small pastoral community in the mountains about 10 kilometers south of Judea. It was so small that there's no archaeological evidence from the period which can even be used to verify its existence, if indeed they even have the location of it right, because a a, a Christian church was built there 400 years later. Other than that, if that's the location that they're looking for Bethlehem, 
it's not necessarily the correct location. So because of, of the question of the location and the lack of archaeological evidence, there's a lot of scoffers who scoff at the entire Bethlehem story. But in, even in the gospel, it, it's very apparent that Bethlehem is a very small village. First, the only people nearby were shepherds. And, and second, there being no room at the inn, most cities at that time were littered with inns. Well, which shows that if there's only one inn and, and probably only a couple of rooms, that also shows that Bethlehem was a very small village. There's another reason why Joseph may not have mentioned this, but, but I'd, li I'd like to say that some Jews even claim that Christ was born at a different Bethlehem, a Bethlehem in Galilee, an idea which flies in the face of Scripture. Some of the Ephraim Scepter heretics have also taken up the Jewish cross in, in that regard and have followed the Jews rather than following the gospel in believing Christ was born at Bethlehem in Galilee. They claim to be, the Ephraim Scepter heretics claim to be anti-Jewish and they adopt the arguments of Jews in claiming that Christ was born in Galilee and not in Bethlehem of Judah. It's very clear from the Gospel accounts, and there's no reason to doubt the manuscripts which, which profess that Christ was born in Bethlehem of Judah. Joseph says in, um, and, and, and what I'm going to say is that because of only the, the relatively small population of Bethlehem, and, and I know that there's people, especially in the Catholic Church, that like to think that thousands of children were killed by Herod. What size of a population of a city would you need to have thousands of children under two years old? You would probably need, um, you would probably have to have Tampa, Florida, or, or um, Dallas, Texas to have thousands of children two years old. It's very likely that there were only a couple of dozen children two years and under in Bethlehem. Maybe not even that many. I, I would seriously doubt it was more than a couple of dozen because of the evident size of Bethlehem right from the scripture, that it was a very small village. Now, Herod did many other evil deeds. The murder of a few dozen children, even a hundred children in the time of Herod, and all the evil deeds that he did could hardly be worthy of notice. And, and I know that sounds callous, but Josephus says in his Antiquities, Book 15, quote, Since Herod now had the government of all Judea, put into his hands. He promoted such of the private men in the city as had been of his party, but never stopped avenging and punishing every day those who had chosen to be of the party of his enemies. Herod was an extremely cruel man, 
When Herod secured power in Judea, he put all of the principal men of the land that were on the side of the hereditary high priests, he put them all to death. Everybody connected to the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees, he slew. Several years later, Herod murdered his own wife and killed several of his own sons. Not long before his death, after a failed sedition against him, Herod again had all of the principal men of Judea gathered into the Hippodrome, which was like a stadium, and he had them all slain. He had them all killed. This would have been right around the time of the birth of Christ. And Josephus records it that way. Josephus doesn't record the birth of Christ, but he records the life of Herod very carefully. The things that he knew. Just before Herod's death, he had all of the principal men of Judea gathered into the Hippodrome and slain. This would have been probably around 3 B.C., and that's the year I believe Christ was born. Herod most likely died, and I'll get into this chronology very carefully when I cover the Gospel of Luke, where I have many, many notes on, on this. Herod most likely died around 1 B.C., which is, he probably died about a year and a half to two years after Christ was born. So we see that Herod committed many great atrocities. He killed thousands of men. He killed his own sons. Anybody that he thought against him, what was against him, and he killed many men at once. So the killing of a couple of dozen babies in, in one of the outer villages in Judea, that's probably not going to get on the radar. That's not going to make headlines. Not in Jerusalem, anyway. So it's it's very safe for, for me to assume that the gospel is true, and, and I would insist on that, but that Josephus probably didn't notice the event. It just probably wasn't that important on the scale of the other terrible things that Herod did. Verse 19. Then upon the dying of Herod, behold, a messenger of Yahweh appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those seeking the, child, the life of the child have died. And arising, he took the child and his mother and entered into the land of Israel. Herod was succeeded by his son, Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus, I'm, well, well, I'm sure he didn't have the same axe to grind that his father did, but Herod Archelaus was twice as wicked as his father. He was so wicked that after a few years he was deposed by the Romans. He was deported. He was um, forced into exile. He went to Spain. Imagine that, southern Spain, another Redomite in southern Spain. And, and um, from that point on, there were no more kings in Judea. It was reduced to, to an imperial province, and, and it was a procurator was put over it. And, and they formed tetrarchies. They split the kingdom into four pieces and, and put four local rulers in charge of each piece. 
and that's why they're called tetrarchs. A tetrarch is called, in Greek means, a leader of a force. And hearing that Archelaus reigns over Judea in place of his father Herod, he, meaning Joseph, feared to depart for there. Joseph was afraid to go to Judea because Archelaus was a wicked bastard. And Joseph knew it. And history proves it. But being warned in a dream, he withdrew into the parts of Galilee. And coming, he settled in a city called Nazareth, that that which had been spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarahian. Now, now I pronounce it Nazarahian for a reason. There are two different Greek words which are both said by strong to mean of Nazareth. Nazarenus, which is always, in, in my translation, Nazarene, and Nazorahius, which is always, in my translation, Nazorian. The King James Version often translates either word of Nazareth. Nazarenus is the more proper of the two forms for that. Sayer does not put of Nazareth in his definition for Nazorahius, which is what appears here. And according to Moulton Geddon, the, the Greek concordance of, of the New Testament, some manuscripts vary from form to form. It is evident in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, that the sect of Christians was called Nazorahians, Nazorians, and Josephus writes of the sect of the Nazorians. Wiston translates it Nazarites. And it can only be referring to Christians. Josephus mentions them in Book 19 of Antiquities, Chapter 6. The Nazarites in the Old Testament are not mentioned in Numbers chapter 6, Judges chapter 13. A lot of people want to take this word Nazorian or Nazarite and connect it to the Nazarites of Numbers chapter 6. Yet it's very clear that the Nazarites of Numbers chapter 6 were never to cut their hair, never to cut their fingernails, and never to drink alcohol and things like that. All things which Yahshua Christ certainly did do during his life. It's fully evident, even though it's not explicit. The reason why Christ was called a Nazorian seems to me to be because the Hebrew word for branch used in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, that Hebrew word is Metzar. Strong's number 5342. And it seems to me that this word gave us the name which became the town of Nazareth and it also gave us the word Nazorahian, or the branch speaking of Christ. Christ is the root and the branch of David. 
He also told the apostles, I am the vine and you are the branches. But a, a meaning, a, a vine meaning that he was the main trunk, right? The Jews wouldn't call the Christians Christians, and they wouldn't call Yahshua the Christ. Because using the title, they would be admitting that he was the Messiah, because that is what Christ means. Because he was from Nazareth, the Jews called him the Nazorian. But calling him the Nazorian, they were still hearkening to Isaiah 11.1 and basically calling him the branch. Paul admitted being of the sect of the Nazoreans in Acts chapter 24, verse 5. And that was because the people of Judah at the time understood that that meant that he was of the followers of Christ. It wasn't that the word Christ and, and Christians didn't come above ground until Christianity was fully accepted by the Romans and until they stopped persecuting it. Eventually, the Jews, our culture becoming predominant, Christian culture becoming predominant, had to use the term Christ and Christians. Every time they use it, they admit who he is, even if they deny him. That They're stuck in that situation. Okay, that's it for um, Matthew chapter 2. I, I, I hope it was clear and complete. That, that's all I, all, all I aim to do here is to explain what I can, the Gospels in their historic content, clearly and completely. And, and um, as, as, much as, is given, as much as I'm given the ability to do. Thank you for being here. I'll be here next week with Matthew chapter 3. An exposition of Matthew chapter 3 will also necessitate an exposition of the entire four chapters of the prophecy of Malachi. So maybe that will be fun. Thank you, everybody, and praise Yahweh. Good night.